Hey, hey, thanks for joining us. It's Jodine here and I'm part of Grimey Baptist Church, which is a faith community in southern Sydney. And this is our last week of our May Mission Month series. And we're going out with a bang, looking at the topic of racism. Our guest speaker is Scott Higgins, who is the director of A Just Cause. And he also consults with Christian organisations around theology and justice. We hope you get some great insights from this podcast and may God speak to you as you listen. Thank you very much. I just want to publicly dissociate myself from anything that Nana B does. <laughs> no, it's um, fantastic. Well done, Nana B. That makes me the son of Nana B or something, doesn't it? It's great to be here with you. You know, in 1963, Martin Luther King, the civil rights leader and Baptist pastor, went to Birmingham in Alabama to lead a peace march. And they threw him into prison. And while he was in prison, seven of the Birmingham's leading white pastors got together and released a statement that said, we don't want Martin Luther King here. We don't want what he stands for here. We want peaceful society. And he's causing trouble. And they just, we, need to, we need to put a, a break on this whole civil rights protest and movement. And while he was in the prison cell there, he wrote a response. It was a long letter. I won't read the whole of it to you. I just want to read one or two paragraphs to you. He said, I guess it is easy for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say, wait. But when you have seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will and drown your brothers and sisters at whim, when you have seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, brutalise, and even kill your black brothers and sisters with impunity. When you see the vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society. When you suddenly find yourself tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she cannot go to the public amusement park that's just been advertised on television. And see tears welling up in her little eyes when she's told that Funtown is closed to coloured children. And you see the depressing clouds of inferiority begin to form in her little mental sky and see her begin to distort her little personality by unconsciously developing a bitterness towards white people. When you have to concoct an answer for a five-year-old asking in an agonising pathos, Daddy, why do white people treat coloured people so mean? When you take a cross-country drive and find it necessary to sleep night after night in the uncomfortable corners of your automobile because a motel will not accept you. When you are humiliated day in and day out by nagging signs reading white and coloured. When your first name becomes nigger and your middle name becomes boy, however old you are, and your last name becomes John. And when your wife and mother are never given a respected title, Mrs. When you are harried by day and haunted by night by the fact that you are a negro, living constantly at tiptoe stance, never knowing what to expect next, and plagued with inner fears and outer resentments. When you are living, forever fighting a degree, a degenerating sense of nobodiness, then you'll understand why we find it difficult to wait. There comes a time when the cup of endurance runs over and men are no longer willing to be plunged into an abyss of injustice where they experience the bleak, bleakness of corroding despair. I hope you, sirs, can understand our legitimate and unavoidable impatience. 
It's amazingly powerful, isn't it? I, I assume that as we stand well on this side of 1963, that all of us empathise with what Martin Luther King wrote in that letter. We, we sit our heads and we, we wonder, how, how could past generations have been so blind to the racism and the injustice that was going on? How could leaders of churches stand up and say, no, we don't want this? Those of us who belong to Baptist churches, we now own Martin Luther King as one of the great heroes of our faith. We celebrate the civil rights movement and the freedom it brought people who were oppressed on the basis of their skin colour. And if you come back to Australia, you, you, know, you may well celebrate our own shifts in our society. You know, we, we once were a society which saw that the, the land was terra nullis at the time of colonisation. Didn't belong to anyone. And I'm proud of the fact that we, we've reached a point where we said we recognise that this was, this was inhabited land. It was owned land. It wasn't ours. We were once a society where we took children from the homes, from their families, Indigenous children, stole them away with the express purpose of actually breeding blackness out of our society. I'm ashamed of that, but I'm proud of the fact that we faced up to that and we've apologised, an astonishing apology you might remember in Parliament. We've made some great progress. So, you know, when I was born, we had a white Australia policy. That's gone. And we are now, many would argue, the most successful immigrant multicultural society on the planet. So there's been lots of progress. But it would be a mistake to think that we live in a society that has freed itself from the chains of racism and bigotry. Beyond Blue did a survey of Australians just a couple of years ago. And one in four, five of us on that survey said that we would move away from an Indigenous person if they sat near us. One in five of us said we would be suspicious of an Indigenous person in a shopping centre. One in ten of us said that we would not give an Indigenous person a job. I find that breathtaking. Or think about our response to people of Islamic faith and culture. One in five of us say that we would not live in a place where there were Muslims living. And even though Muslims in Australia have higher education levels on average than the average non-Muslim, it is harder for a Muslim to get a job. One of our major universities did a research project three years ago in which they sent out resumes to apply for a whole number of jobs that had been advertised in the paper. And they, they made sure that the people for each job that they applied for, the people that they put the applications in for had the same qualification level, the same level of experience in workplace. And then they waited to see what response they would get. The only difference between the applications was that at the bottom of some applications were people with a Anglo-Saxon sounding name and at the bottom of the other lot of applications were people with a Middle Eastern sounding name. Those with an Anglo-Saxon name found that 36% of the jobs they applied for they got a follow-up interview or callback. Yet for those with a Middle Eastern sounding name the figure was almost half that. It seems that there's an unconscious and latent prejudice in many of us. I suspect probably in all of us to some degree. So we're left with the fact that we, we live in a society that still has lingering racist tendencies. We've made a lot of progress, but we still have progress to go, don't we? 
Benjamin Isaac says that the essence of racism is that it regards individuals as superior or inferior because they are believed to share imagined physical, mental and moral attributes with the group to which they are deemed to belong. And it is assumed that they cannot change these traits individually. You belong to that group, therefore this is what you are like. Well, with that in mind, I want to go to the Bible and ask, what response does it call us to have? How does it call us to, to deal with this? And there's a lot we could say, but I just want to focus in for a few minutes on Paul's letter to the Colossian Christians. This is what he says in chapter 3. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have stripped off the old self with its practices and have clothed yourselves with the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of its creator. In that renewal, there is no longer Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness and patience. Bear with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other, just as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called into one body. I'm interested in this passage because you'll notice up there the part I've written in red. It probably has a familiar ring. We're used to hearing this formula, you know, in Christ there is no male and female, Jew or Greek, uh, Jew or Gentile, slave or free. And it seems that there was a formula that was sort of spread around the early churches that people would, would repeat this. In Christ, there is, you know, this is what's the truth. And what Paul seems to do in this passage is he inserts a couple of extra words in there. He refers to the barbarian and the Scythian. And so I asked myself, well, what, what's he talking about there? And I went back to the study. The guy who gave us that quote about racism earlier, um, Isaac, Benjamin Isaac, actually wrote a seminal work. He's a historian from Tel Aviv University and he, he wrote a seminal work on racism in the ancient world. And he said that racism in the ancient world was different to the racism we know today. Ever since Charles Darwin um, and the, the theories of you know, evolution and we, you know, growing awareness of biology and, and inheritance, so ever since then, we started to link colour with attributes. So we'd say you're black or you're Asian or whatever you are, you're like this or like that. And we'd say there's some biologically inherent part of you that means you can't change. We didn't, don't find that in the ancient world. What we find instead is same, still the fear of foreigners, still the fear of groups that are other, but there are different grounds for why people are seen to be um, one way or another. And so there's this phrase, the barbarians, that is used through uh, Greek and Roman writing. So you read Cicero, Tacitus, um, uh, Plato, any of those philosophers, you'll hear them talk about the barbarians. And it seems that what they refer to there are people who were seen as inferior because they lived in particular places. This was one of the theories. If you live in a cold region, it'll make you this way. If you live in a warm region, it'll make you this way. And so um, Aristotle, the philosopher, said that people who lived in the north, where it's cold, were full of spirit and fight, but deficient in skill and intelligence. The people of Asia were the opposite. They had plenty of skill and intelligence, but they didn't have much spirit and fight and vigour. But us Greeks, we've got the best of both worlds. We've got intelligence and skill, and we've got fight and vigour. So that means we should rule everyone. Racism is always used to justify narratives of power. 
And here it was back here. So you have this idea of Greeks versus barbarians or Romans versus barbarians. The other person we mentioned there is the Scythians. And the Scythians were, were part of a group of people that were seen as kind of the worst of the worst barbarians. You know, the most beastly, the most animal-like, the most difficult to get along with, the people you don't want to hang around. They were rumoured to, you know, to be cannibals. Josephus, the first century historian, Jewish historian, said, you know, these Scythians, they actually enjoy killing people and then consuming them. And they're beastly, worse than wild beasts. So that's the context Paul's writing to. And it would seem you have this church that has all these groups in it, Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free, barbarians, Scythians, Greeks, Romans. And he calls them to a new way of looking at each other, a new way of seeing each other. He says, calls them to recognise when they gather together that that person sitting across the room from you can no longer be spoken of or thought of as a barbarian who has a fierce spirit but lacks intelligence or as an Asian who has intelligence but lacks spirit or a murderer like a Scythian. When you look across the room, you see somebody who, like you, is being recreated, renewed in the image of their creator, somebody who's being made like Christ, like the way they were meant to be. You see somebody who's the image bearer. You see somebody who belongs to Christ. And because they belong to Christ, they now take on the characteristics of Christ. And if that was true, then hostility was to be replaced with compassion, bigotry with kindness, the arrogant assertion that you were superior because you came from some particular climate or some particular group was to be replaced with humility. The desire to assert your superiority was to be replaced with meekness, your impatience with the supposed failings of the other replaced with patience. If they were all being renewed in the image of their creator, if they all belong to Christ, then they all belong to God and each other. And they needed to learn to see each other in that light. And I assume that as they saw each other in the church like that, they took that with them when they went outside the church. And when they met the barbarian and the Scythian and the, the Jew and the Greek in the, the marketplace, this new spirit, this new way of seeing them as somebody who shared the image of God, was loved by God, transformed the way they perceived them. So what does that mean for us? Let me suggest three practical implications of this. The first one is that we need to ground our valuing and treatment of people in the fact that they are created in the image of God, loved by God, and that Christ died for them. I suspect we're never going to get rid of our racist tendencies because there's always going to be groups of people who you don't have much familiarity with and it's easy to believe the myths and the, the, the statements that are made about them. There's that tendency in all of us to fear the other, to fear the foreigner. But as a follower of Jesus, I want to say, whatever my perceptions of a person might be, whatever your perceptions of a person might be, those mythologies can never be the grounds for how we treat them. They're never the calculus by which we de determine how we should conduct ourselves. The calculus by which we conduct ourselves is the calculus of the gospel that says, teaches me to see that every person is created in the image of God and they deserve to be respected for that. Every person is loved by God and they deserve me to love them as well. Every human being was the object of Christ's death on the cross. And if God values people, if God sees them 
as worthwhile and, and loves them. Surely I must too. Whatever perceptions I may have, I need to put them aside and value each person for who they are as the creation and beloved of God. The second thing I want to suggest to you is that we need to actually then counter those mythologies and prejudices that come to us with positive stories and relationships. The singularly best way I've found to rid myself of my, my prejudices is to actually become friends with people I have prejudices about. It changes everything. When I know an Indigenous person as, as a friend and as I've listened to their story and I've heard what they've got to say, when you start mouthing out your, your prejudices, I just go, hang on, that doesn't fit with the person I know. Things are way too, more too complex than your simplistic statements try to say. This, it's not how, not how it works. It's not, it's not what I've experienced. When I get to know a Muslim, I'll discover that all those things that we say about Muslims, well, a whole bunch of them just aren't true. And I'll, I'll start saying, this, this person I know, this is what they're like. We need to get to know people. That's why it's important that we just don't tolerate each other in our society. We actually have to get to know each other. We have to get to know those who are different because it's knowing them relationally that teaches us to see them differently. And at least listen to the stories. The stories you can get from everywhere. I um, was struck by this about 10 years ago when I was at a conference in Australia. And there was a, a pastor, the guy there, Victor, he was out from Indonesia, an Indonesian pastor. He lived in one of the most fundamentalist Muslim parts of Indonesia. And while we are at the conference, news broke of a pogrom against the Christians. A, bunch of, a group of uh, fundamentalist Muslims were going around and tearing down churches, burning them to the ground and threatening violence. And Victor was terrified because, you know, he, he's, he just left his newborn baby, their first child and his wife, back where all this violence was occurring. And he was making plans to go to the airport when he received a phone call. It was next door, his next-door neighbour, who's a Muslim woman, and her husband, Muslim husband, and they said, Victor, we want you to know that you've, you, your wife and your child are totally safe. We are here with them, protecting them from any violence that comes around. And the imam has said that if the violence escalates, he'll take all the Christians into the mosque and protect them. And in the 10 years since, as I've spoken to Victor, he said, you know, Scott, that happens over and over and over again. But all you here in Australia are the stories of the fundamentalists who are violent. We need to start to hear all the stories because that will break through the distortions and the prejudices. Get to know people, hear their stories and listen for the stories of others. And thirdly, I want to suggest to you that we need, as Australians, and I think particularly as those who are mainly part of the dominant, you know, white, wealthy group in our society, we need to address the present-day inequities that are a consequence of the past. And that's particularly the case, I think, with regards to our Indigenous peoples, our First Nations. The simple reality is that we haven't dealt with everything we need to deal with. Because Indigenous children are still twice as likely to die before they reach the age of five as a non-Indigenous person. If they reach the age of five, an Indigenous person is still likely to live 10 years less than a non-Indigenous person. And you can go through a whole bunch of social indicators and find out that for Indigenous people as a whole, Australia still is a place where they, their outcomes are not as good as they are for the rest of the population. Something's gone wrong there. Now, racism would say, oh, it's a problem. there's something inherent about being Indigenous. 
Well, you know that's false. Something's gone wrong with our history. Something's gone wrong with the relationships we have with one another. Something's gone wrong with the way our society is structured that has left Indigenous people still on the outer and still not able to take up all the opportunities that non-Indigenous have. One poignant example of that I read about this week. So a young woman living in Moree, where Indigenous population has a, a pretty awful reputation. And she said, oh, I wanted to rent a place for myself and my family and I couldn't find one. Because the moment anybody heard I was Indigenous, they'd say, sorry, I'm not renting to you. The only way, the only way she could get a rental property was to have one of her white friends rent it for her. And this is what she said about that. She said, it's just this really deep, deep feeling of you don't belong. And no matter what you do, nothing's going to change. You feel like a non-person. 200 years of marginalisation and racism cannot be undone overnight. They have left a legacy that I suspect will take multiple generations to unpick. They've left a wound in the life of our nation that still needs to be healed. But if we can look across the room and remember that we are all people created in the image of God, if we can look across the room and hear the stories of those who are marginalised, and if we can look across the room and lay aside our prejudice, then we can keep on working together to build a new day and a new world. Thanks, Mark. Uh, as we have the last couple of weeks uh, in May, we want to give an opportunity for a bit of a Q&A uh, with Scott about uh, the issue that we just heard a little bit about, which I think you would agree is a little bit challenging uh, for us to kind of work through and what we need to begin to do with that. Uh, the number that you can text is on the screen behind me, uh, and that will go to Mark Coleman, uh, and we'll go through a few questions in a few minutes. So we've got a bit of an opportunity to interact with us a little bit, which I think is really helpful for us because this is a bit of a theological exercise where we take what we believe about God and we try to make it work in real life. That's, that's theology at its best. So, Scott, let me begin with a question yeah. while some of them might come in. You know, you said that, you know, you've, um, you, you know, in your life a great deal has changed. You've been thinking a little bit about this. Uh, I think like many people here, we, we don't want to think of ourselves as being yeah. racist or bigoted or any of those sorts of things. How have you seen, though, discrimination, like, in your own life? Are, are there particular areas that you have seen you've kind of gone, oh, yep, that's on me? Um, that I've discriminated? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, yeah, I... I, re I was sitting in a um, co conference in Canberra oh, four years ago, uh, the Beyond Conference, and um, they had a, an Aboriginal elder speaking, Auntie Jean. And, you know, she was just pouring out so, so much pain. And she was just pouring out her heart, and, you know, it's this pain of saying, it's, it's still broken. And I've got to confess, I, I was sitting there, I was thinking, flipping hell. Sorry, I probably shouldn't say that in church, but <laughs> I started thinking that, and I was thinking, how much longer is this going to go on for? Yeah, and I got quite impatient with her. Because I thought, haven't, haven't we done enough already? And, and as I was walking back from the campsite, I thought, yeah, you idiot, Scott. Um, no, we haven't done enough. <laughs> but, you know, I found myself getting quite impatient because, you know, I want it to be fixed. I want it to be fixed quickly. I'm a white man. That's what I do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, you know? that's right. And so, so I find that in myself. And, and I had to stop and pause and go, actually, no, mm. this can't be fixed quickly. This mm. is... This is something that's 
there's still a lot of work to do. I think one of the, I think you just, you know, the, the point you just raised about being a white man, yeah. um, I've, been, I've recently been reading a book on Australian leadership, and uh, one of the chapters that talks about power and rank, uh, and talks about the rank that we, we hold, uh, and how your social rank then indicate or um, is really significant for how people will relate to you and how you relate to them. And then it listed those in Australian society who have the most rank, and it went basically uh, white, Male, middle-aged, married with children who owns their own home, tertiary educated, who was raised by two parents who own their own home. And I thought that would be me. Uh, which means, essentially, that I do not experience racism or discrimination. Never happens to me. I'm the last person in Australia who's going to get any of that. Uh, and that, that has huge implications because it's really difficult then for me to see where I, I might discriminate against someone else. And I think that's really important. I don't know if you saw in the news this week, uh, Senator Ian McDonald questioned whether we actually need a national race uh, discrimination commissioner, because as far as he's concerned, uh, there's very, very little racism in Australia. Uh, Ian McDonald is a white middle-aged man who's married, I think, and probably owns his own home. Uh, you you kind of get the deal. Uh, yeah, of course he's never experienced any of it. So I think it's yeah. a really critical thing. Now, one of the things that we're looking at as a church is to uh, press into cultural diversity where we're going to kind of be confronting this. We want to be a community of faith for our community. It's becoming more culturally diverse. You were born in the Shire. Shire um, boy, yep. But you no longer live here. No. Uh, which is... A good thing. I escaped. I'm one of the few. You're a refugee. Uh, um, um, But nonetheless, what what would you say to us as a church of some things that we probably need to be aware of as we're thinking about really becoming less and less Anglo and more and more culturally diverse? Yep. I I say two things. So in my church in in Newcastle, we actually have fostered a fair bit of cultural diversity. Um, So two things. One is some things you will do as a church will now seem strange to you. And they'll feel a bit weird. I might even make you feel uncomfortable. Um, but the other thing is that those same, there's lots of opportunities for you to, to actually grow. Um, so, you know, you'll, you'll introduce some customs and practices that will actually be quite lovely, that might be quite strange at first, but you'll actually find that they deepen and enrich you. Can you give so. us an, an example that you guys have used in Newcastle? Yes, uh, this one might be a little controversial, so <laughs> feel free to theologically slap me down. Um, <laughs> We, we have some people in our church who come from an uh, Eastern background, and uh, in Buddhist temples, they have these things called prayer bowls, where they, um, you get a, um, it's like a bowl that's calibrated specially to you know, give vibrations at a particular resonance, and you, um, you run this uh, thing around the inside of them, and they make this sound. And we've actually started using them in our prayer at church, because we figure that resonance and vibration doesn't belong to the devil, it belongs to Jesus. And um, that's been really quite beautiful because it just, it, I don't know what it does, but it's somehow the, 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 the vibrations, my physicist friends tell me, do something that actually help calm you and focus you. So it's been really great, but it's been a bit, you know, it's odd at first. Yeah, yeah. And what has that meant then for, say, those who've come from a Buddhist background? What does that mean? Oh, it them? means they feel, like we've got one guy in our church who was a Buddhist priest for two and a half years in Thailand, so... Um, it just means that they are able to connect much more strongly with their tradition and, and find stuff of real value in it that they can bring to us. So. Great. Have some questions, Mark? So many of our questions, uh, a few have come through, about helping us, uh, how do we recognise and understand the kind of latent racism within us and how can we begin to sort of challenge those um, 
you know, uh, those ways that we've operated. Yeah, look, I, I think it's actually quite hard because we, you don't know that you, what you don't know. Um, so it's very easy to, you know, just accept all the things that people say, people are like. I suppose my, I'd say two things. Number one, the moment somebody says to you, such and such a person is like this because that's what their group is like, you know you're dealing with racism. So the, those generalisations, yep. yeah. Yep, you know, all you know, Indigenous people can't keep a job because they all go, want to go walk about every now and then. I mean, it's just rubbish. But, um, you know, once you hear those broad statements, realise that. But as I said in the um, start, in this end there, get to, know, get to know people who are different. And if you don't have any sort of people you obviously can, can get to know, read books. You know, there's amazing literature out there, people telling their stories, or watch, you know, videos. But somehow listen to people telling their own stories rather than people telling stories about them. Are there, are there some examples that you notice frequently, say, in, in Australian culture, like yeah. th those kind of, it's that unconscious, unthinking yeah. kind of racism. You know, we, don't, we don't mean to be racist, we're not seeking to be bigots, but the sorts of things that we're doing that really reinforce that stuff? Yeah, look, I think there's probably three groups of people that are particularly um, experienced. It's not racism, it's prejudice. Um, so Indigenous peoples, I think that, I think probably there's, I've, my experience is there's a, there's a vindictiveness in some of the people's attitudes towards Indigenous people that I don't find in others. Um, you know, there's, when the jokes are told, they're told with a bit of venom behind them. Um, so I think Indigenous people, there's all kinds of mythologies around about them. Um, you know, to start with, they're, they're all very different people, so we can't do that. I think Muslims, um, so it's... Islam's interesting because it's both a religion and a culture. Yeah. Um, so I'm talking about Islam, Muslim as a culture. And, you know, I just... I hear people just say ridiculous things, you know... Um, okay, I'll give you one example. But the, the week before the Cronulla riots, we were down visiting some friends who live in Ingedine and their 18 and 19-year-old sons came in and said, it's going to be on next Sunday at, uh, at the beach. There's going to be big fights because be, we're getting the lebs out. Because the lebs don't respect our women. I thought, you come from surf culture. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> we're talking about respect for women, seriously. But it was that kind of blindness to their own their own flaws, and then this attempt to just smear everybody who was Lebanese with the one brush. Um, and then, of course, refugees, particularly those who arrived by boat. I mean, people just say ridiculous things that are, you know, um, you know they, they're, not, they're not really refugees. And we've got this whole language of genuine refugees. There's no such thing as a genuine refugee. There's just a refugee. You either are or you aren't. So, yes. Can I just come back before another question? You talk about the jokes. In yeah. an Australian culture... That kind of that can be a two-edged sword because yeah. you know you, you make a joke and someone goes oh that's a little bit racist you're like oh yeah it's just a joke can you reflect a little bit on that whole language of it's just a yeah. joke yeah I think um I, the th one of the things I love about being an Australian is that for many parts of our culture the part I operate in we actually rip rip each other apart you know and it's the way you tell somebody you love them Mark I think you're an idiot you know, <laughs> thank you I love you too you know. <laughs> I either really mean it or, or it's a term of endearment. So I love that about our culture. I think, however, that jokes about race, um, you may not intend them to offend, but they do. Um, people get, get wounded by them. So you can tell a joke about Aboriginal people. You can tell the worst Aboriginal jokes, most offensive Aboriginal jokes on us if you're Aboriginal. If you're white, just don't go there. <laughs> um, because it's, it's, something, it's one thing to make fun of yourself 
It's another thing to make fun of another group. Yeah, great, thanks. Mark? So there's lots of uh, questions kind of along the lines that you've already spoken about, but um, partly what can we do uh, within our local context within the Shire to, um, to kind of make a change in the way that racist patterns are kind of propagated, but also uh, questions around whether we're doing enough or we have done enough uh, in terms of our response to uh, indigenous people and, uh, and, you know, and, the, and actually the church kind of taking ownership for what we have been a part of. Have we done enough? Can we do more? So this. Well, <laughs> um, no, Small we haven't one. done enough. And the reason we haven't done enough is people are still wounded. Yeah, the object is to get to a such position where our indigenous, our First Nations, not only feel that they are completely belonging in our society, but they have the same outcomes. Um, in terms of life expectancy and things. So we're not there, so clearly there's more to be done. I think knowing what that is is hard. Um, I find a number of, within the indigenous communities, there are, there are differences of opinion on where we need to go. Um, we, we have this problem that we are the only colonised nation that didn't make a treaty with the people they colonised early on. And so it's left this massive hole of unfinished business. Your whole history's been built upon this notion that well, we didn't actually displace anybody. We didn't, you know, uh, we didn't, we hurt people. Well, we did, and we didn't make a treaty that recognised it. So we've got, I don't know how, what, how we get back there. I don't know what the answer is. I think, you know, um, I think it was a great move when the, um, you know, the Indigenous communities got together and they made a suggestion to the federal government about what they think could work. And I don't know that that got enough consideration, but I think we have to listen to the, those communities and find out, well, what, what do you need from us? I can't tell you what they need because I'm not them. But we've got to ask that question. And within the context of the Shire, like not so much with Indigenous people, yeah. but in this context, yeah. what are the yeah. sorts of things that we can be thinking through? Yeah, well, I think it's the case if you know. Um, as you said, the Shire's becoming more culturally diverse. Take the walk across the road and introduce yourself to the new neighbour um, who might be culturally different. I do think that we need as churches, back to the indigenous issue, I think as churches we need to say, even if we don't have a lot of indigenous people living in our, our area, um, this is an issue that we have to own as Australians. Because we're all inherited, we've all inherited the privilege that's come from the dispossession of the indigenous nations. So I think, as, but I think we need to do something collective as a denomination that then is worked out at every congregation, congregation level. One more. So there's one point uh, someone just wanted to raise that uh, the importance and which you know, Scott has already spoken about of the, uh, the value of hearing from people from different cultures about what should be done um, and that you know, they agreed that it was important that we did that. The final question, and I think this is a good one for us to uh, wrestle with, um, is, is there still a role uh, for patriotism? Um, are we at risk of... Uh, being ashamed of our own cultural heritage while, while trying to prevent foreign, foreigners from feeling that very same thing. How do we kind of deal with that? I would say that there's room for patriotism but not nationalism. So let me distinguish between the two. Nationalism says uh, we're better than you and we're going to, you know, we, we have the right to, to do whatever we want to anybody who's not an Australian. Um, it's kind of that ugly side of patriotism. I think patriotism, on the other hand, says there's stuff that we can be genuinely proud of in our nation. And I, I, I don't want to communicate that we all have to go around, you know, in sackcloth and ashes. There's great things about being a part of the Australian society. I love it. I love it when we beat the All Blacks in the Rugby League Union. So 
Um, you know, sinful things like that. So, you know, we've got amazing tr traditions of liberal democracy. Um, we've got extraordinary, um, you know, history of ingenuity and science and, and research that's produced astonishing um, technologies and medicine. So I'd say be proud as punch of what we've achieved as a, as a society and a nation, but don't let there become this kind of, you know, we are the Greeks and Romans and they're the barbarians. That's sort of more nationalist, I'd say. I want to ask you whether we should get rid of Australia Day or not. Do you want an answer, a quick answer? Yeah, give me a quick answer. I think we should move it. And only because, um, you know, our, many of our Indigenous brothers and sisters are saying, look, this is just like putting the boot into us. You know, you celebrate, we want to celebrate Australia together, you know, we want to all be part of the one nation, but it's a bit hard when you do it on the day that we remember we were invaded. So I just think, why can't we move it? There's no, special, there's no special reason for the date we have. It's not like Anzac Day, which is sort of more fixed, I think. Yeah. I just think we should move it. There you go. That's not to be uh, talking about, wouldn't you say? Would you thank Scott again for being with us tonight? Thanks, Mark. <clears throat> uh, just before I invite uh, the team up to lead us in a couple of songs of uh, worship, just want to kind of wrap up with a, just a couple of really quick thoughts for us. Um, uh, we've covered some of some of the stuff, and I hope there's a lot more, a lot more conversations afterwards. But uh, there's a fairly significant American theologian uh, died in 1962. I think it was uh, H. Richard Niebuhr wrote a, a really significant work called Christ and Culture in 1951, and he had a much kind of wider kind of ethical framework for how Christians needed to make decisions. But one of the things that he talked about is that the church needs to become what he called a pioneering community. And what he meant by that was God is always at work. God is always moving in the world. And so the church's job in part is to be listening attentively to what God is doing, uh, to be uh, aware of where he is doing it, and then be the first ones to get on board. And the process of becoming the first people on board with what God's doing usually begins with a recognition of the ways in which we have stood in the way or opposed what God has done. Uh, he would say that the first act of the pioneering church is actually to repent of the ways in which we have stood in the way and opposed the work of God. You know, Scott mentioned the, the Cronulla riots. Don't know how many of you remember them. Uh, you've probably had them, you've been reminded of them even if you can't remember them. Uh, and I think that, you know, while the church made all the right overtures, we said all the right stuff, right? Uh, this isn't uh, in line with the gospel. Uh, the church stands for peace. We want to pray for peace, all of those sorts of things. I also believe that the church in Australia, and particularly in the Sutherland Shire, missed an opportunity. Because at that point in time, our nation was crying out for an answer. And I, I think that we missed the opportunity to actually stop and look in our hearts and say, you know what? There were people in our congregations who thought that the Lebs got what they deserved. That there was actually racism and discrimination and bigotry inside the church. And that is not gospel. We missed an opportunity to bring all that stuff before the Lord and say, you know what? This is just a broken area of our lives. We believe you're at work. How can we be the first people, the first people to really engage with this? I think we kind of missed it. But the Shire is becoming more culturally diverse by the day, is it not? I've told you a few times now, hear me now, believe me later, we will not be the last primarily Anglo-Saxon church in the Sutherland Shire. It won't happen. 
All right, this is another opportunity for us to begin by looking and seeing, so where is discrimination? Subconscious, uh, well-meaning, perhaps not particularly uh, intentioned to be offensive, but where does that actually exist for us? I think that's going to be some pretty big challenges for us uh, as a community of faith, particularly for those of us who find ourselves, like like me, with lots of social rank, uh, where you don't experience discrimination and racism. And we're going to have to do a lot of listening as a community of faith. We're going to have to do a lot of thinking, a lot of praying about what that's going to look like for us in the future. But I think it's an incredibly important challenge because... You know, the, the vision that drove Paul to say what he said in the Colossian letter, right? That there's neither Jew nor Greek, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, right? All are in Christ. The vision that drove that was the vision that we actually find in the book of Revelation, where every nation, tribe, tongue worships Jesus. That's the vision of heaven. And as Jesus prayed or taught us to pray, we want to see the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And so we have an opportunity in our very practices and how we treat people, how we think that stuff through, to bring heaven down to earth, to actually live out what we will all experience one day in glory. And I think that's certainly worth it. I'm going to invite the team up. They're going to lead us in a couple of songs of uh, worship. Uh, and as they do, there'll be the opportunity for prayer. We have members of our prayer team just down the front. We'd love to pray for you or with you uh, or with, uh, with you for someone else, whatever that might be, uh, and with that, whatever's going on in the midst of all of that. Uh, but before we do, let me lead us in prayer as the team comes forward. Lord Jesus, we do thank you that um, in you uh, there is no race or ethnicity. Uh, that those are not the defining characteristics, but that in you we find ourselves as those who have been created in the image of God and loved enough by you and held in enough esteem by you for you to die for us and to bring us into a new family where the primary distinction is whether we are followers after you. And I pray that that might become ever more true for us as a community of faith here, as we seek to be a community of faith for our changing community. I pray through your Holy Spirit, you would reveal to us the ways in which we have allowed discrimination and bigotry and racism to remain and exist in our hearts, that you would show us what you are doing in the world and that we would be a pioneering community uh, to, to show our world the way of the kingdom of God, of the kingdom of heaven, the way things really should be in your design. So we commit ourselves to you again and ask for your blessing, for we ask it in your name. Amen. If you would like to engage with more content in this space, check out the website www.adjustcause.com.au or have a look at Scott's website, which is www.scottjhiggins.com. We hope you enjoyed our May Mission Month series and we look forward to you joining us again soon.